Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. My name is Daniel McCauley, and I'm joined today by Matt Carey and Nimish Shukla. These guys are both uh, Wharton grads. They have co-founded a FinTech startup called Abaris, operating in the annuity space, which I suppose falls under the umbrella of insurance tech, right? So these guys, yeah, yeah, it's a it's a massive insurance tech market. <laughs> I say that somewhat facetiously. It's growing. It's about to be large. It is growing. So we're going to be chatting today about uh, what it's like starting uh, a company while at school. We're going to be talking about what's going on in annuities, in insurance tech. We're going to be talking about some of the challenges these guys are dealing with uh, starting a company, specifically in the world of finance. So before we get into the discussion, uh, Matt and Nimish, why don't you guys give us a couple minutes each on where you came from and how you guys decided to start the company? Sure. Uh, thanks, Daniel, for, for having us on. This is Matt. Um, so I uh, grew up in Leeds, Maine, a zero stoplight town, and uh, went to Penn for undergrad. And then, like most of the people at Penn around 2006, 2007, um, I decided to go to, into finance, worked at an investment bank for several years, and then went to work at the U.S. Treasury. Um, and that's that was kind of actually the, the genesis for uh, coming up with the idea for Abaris. Um, I was working on retirement policy at the Treasury um, and then decided in 2013 to, to start a business um, while pursuing an MBA at Wharton. And I have to correct you on one thing, Daniel. I'm actually not a graduate yet of Wharton. I'm three quarters of the way through. Um, probably will finish at some point. Close enough. Dan, appreciate you having us on the show. Uh, I'm Nimish Shukla. I'm one of the co-founders of Abaris as well, uh, along with Matt and our third co-founder, Adam. I uh, grew up in Reston, Virginia. It's about 30 minutes outside DC. Went to undergrad, a liberal arts school, ended up being a finance major. Uh, like Matt, I also spent a number of years at an investment bank and spent a year in India actually helping artisans uh, create business plans and think through supply chain issues before coming back to Wharton uh, to get my MBA, which is where I met Matt. And we started talking about inefficiencies in the market and Matt's idea uh, to start a Boris. And the rest is kind of history after that. And unlike Matt, I am, in fact, a <laughs> graduate of the Wharton School. <laughs> you've got the diploma to hang on the wall. I've, I've got the diploma to prove it. <laughs> so, all right. So we've, we've got up to the point where you guys have, have met at Wharton in the MBA program. Matt had the, the germ of this idea while he was working with Tim at Treasury. Um, why don't you guys walk us through the first six months? You guys meet, you're working on this. Is it in a class? What kind of resources are you using? What kind of things are you thinking about? How many times did you change the idea? Let's get into like the really early days of, of Abaris. So in about March of 2013, um, I started uh, really looking at the annuity market. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with the annuity market, um, about $230 billion worth of annuities were purchased last year in the U.S., um, most, the majority of it, about 60% of it, is through insurance agents, um, and then most of the remainder is through financial advisors. Um, and 
uh, started just looking at ways the market uh, could be more efficient. Um, it's a really important market for people who are entering retirement or in retirement. Um, and, you know, as a millennial, um, I already at that point was seeing some of the awesome things that um, personal capital and Wealthfront and Betterment were doing for my generation. And I thought, wow, um, there's got to be an opportunity to use tech uh, to, to better um, optimize for the things that, that uh, older Americans face as well. So uh, decided I wanted to pursue this, you know, to, to answer a part of your question. The idea has changed a little bit over time, um, but has mostly uh, remained the same, which is a platform-based system where um, insurance companies are um, you know, the, the, we're able to compare insurance quotes uh, side by side and, and help people understand whether the product's right for them or not. Um, but I, uh, I came to Wharton with this idea in my mind, and Nimish and I were actually in the same cohort uh, of business school, and we started working on the idea in an um, entrepreneurship class um, very early on, uh, probably starting in October or... November of that mm. first year, um, it was Nimish and I and several several other people as well. Um, and then around that time, we met our third co-founder, Adam, who was an undergrad um, at the time. And the three of us uh, started, you know, working together and kind of it was a side project at the beginning. Um, you know, and it took us six months really to to formalize what the business would be. Um, you know, incorporate it and really, really get going, which was about, you know, last summer. Yeah. And I think just to add, you know, we went through a lot of, a lot of the same process, I think that most entrepreneurs do in their early stages. Matt kind of had the initial idea. We spent a lot of time thinking through that idea, doing a lot of background research on the market, which I think Matt, Matt had a much greater handle on that, but we really set out to first understand the market, I think better understand what the opportunity was for us, and then I think start to craft the early business plan, um, which we had a chance, by the way, to actually, I think, iterate on pretty quickly and get really good real-time feedback on, not only from the professor of the class, but then through a lot of the resources that are available at school. Uh, and then from there, we actually went through the legal process of getting the business set up, uh, and we've been working on it ever since. Cool, so you guys, in your first year at business school, when did you decide that you weren't going to go intern at a, a you know, take a traditional summer internship and you guys were going to do this? When did you figure that out? Um, you know, I, we, we got involved in the, the business plan competition. And, you know, I think most of the people listening who have started companies, like at this point, you know, most people don't write business plans and enter business plan competitions. It's kind of an antiquated idea. They really need to change the name and format of that. They yeah. agreed. Um, and I don't think they're particularly useful for investors um, because if you can't explain your idea as an entrepreneur to an investor in, in less than two minutes, then it's probably not a great idea. Or at the very least, you haven't figured out a way to cogently explain it to investors. Properly, yeah. yeah. And so you're going to have a hard time with customers as well. Um, but it was really useful for us to really th dig in and think about the economics of the business and the go-to-market and, and all of those types of things. Um, so for internal purposes, really important. To answer your question, um, you know, once we um, started meeting together outside of class and working on the business, that's when I decided 
to uh, that I was going to pursue that uh, for the summer. Um, and actually, it's a funny story. Uh, uh, we, th- originally, there were four of us, and uh, one of our original co-founders, uh, Jason Grimes, uh, pursued it with me as well. And then uh, Nimish and Adam uh, decided to to pursue a, uh, a summer internship. Yeah, it's uh, it, you know it's funny that you asked that question. But when I when I first came back to business school, I was actually thinking about. Uh, an internship in the private equity space. And I had been thinking about that transition for a number of years back when I was in banking. And I came back to school with the explicit goal of of trying to find a job, I think, in private equity. And um, that's obviously not what ended up happening. But, you know, I think it, when I went into that that summer first year, that goal of, of exploring private equity and understanding it better, I think, was something that I still had. So, while Matt and Jason actually were in New York working on the business full time, uh, I actually went out to San Francisco and and was working at a pretty small private equity shop. Uh, spent my summer there, and I also spent you know some time helping out Matt and, and Jason with the business. And I think I came to the end of the summer and realized that you know with with the business that we were building, I had a real opportunity I think to change the way that a market functions. And make it function a lot better for consumers that don't have that opportunity today. And I wasn't going to find, I think, that you know, a chance to do that in the private equity industry. And that's what really drew me when I came back for the summer. Uh, I dedicated, you know, kind of coming on full time and spent my the rest of the two semesters and now full time after I've graduated with the business as well. All right, cool. So you guys are now 100% committed. No more school. <laughs> no more side jobs. And um, Adam graduated too, so you guys are now officially. We are, yeah, full time. We are full time. I uh, I remember one just a, the story of uh, Jason and I working out for the summer. Um, I remember one walk back. You may remember this too, Nimish, from from campus to to Center City where we lived, and I, you know, as a, as a founder. Uh, pride myself on my negotiating ability. Um, and I thought I had convinced Nimish to do it for the summer, but <laughs> I said, you know, look, like if we're, we've really got to take this to the next level and build this. And being a founder, I think is all about convincing, uh, stakeholders, whoever they are along the way, uh, that, you know, this is something worth dedicating, uh, you know, a career to, or, or money toward, you know, at the, as a customer or being an investor, and over time, you know, you, you know, you'll win, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll convince the skeptics. <laughs> and, uh, and <laughs> so, you know, it, it's something, you know, it, it was a lesson in, in patience and, uh, and hard work, but, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the last time that we, uh, we've managed to convert a skeptic, not a skeptic. I shouldn't say that, but, uh, you know, to win the day. There you go. So we've heard a lot about the the genesis of Avaris, the idea, the team. Um, have you guys raised money? What's your financial situation like? Um, anything else we should know? We have um, raised money uh, from friends and family. Um, about two-thirds of it was last summer and then a little bit more um, last month. Uh, to bring on a, a strategic investor, um, we haven't yet announced who that is, but we will um, shortly. So, we, initially, we self-funded it, um, 
and you know in term you know i think as a startup speed is really important um and we we felt that bringing in a bit of outside capital would be helpful in helping us move faster and and build the product um which we now have um and uh we're diligently focused on uh connecting with customers through marketing through content um and and uh, making sure that uh, everyone out there is aware of uh, the awesome stuff we're doing and, and how we're helping uh, consumers. Great. So I'll have you back on the podcast soon to announce who that strategic investor is. <laughs> 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 All right. So we've been talking a lot about the company, but we haven't really touched on what exactly you guys are really doing. Um, and I think in order to explain that clearly, why don't we jump in here and discuss the annuity space like what is an annuity in the context of our discussion um what does the market look like why did you guys decide to do this um give us give us some background to understand why you're adding value yeah that's a that's a good question and you know the annuity space the annuity space is a pretty complicated i think and and a large one so you know the place to start i think is the fact that there's there are a lot of different types of annuities and the ones that we sell are called income annuities. And, you know, if you really think about these products, I think the best way to think about them is as, you know, a private market social security or a pension plan. So the products that we sell allow consumers to take a portion of the money that they've saved today and turn that into an income stream for life. And what that means is essentially if you're a consumer, you can take, you know, let's say $10,000 today and wait five years, and in five years, you're going to start receiving a paycheck that you actually get every single month until you pass away. Uh, now, there's a lot of other types of annuities, and um, we don't really sell those, but income annuities are the ones that we sell, I think, that they really target a, a challenge that we saw rising as we looked at the demographics, and we looked at the challenges that people that were turning 65 today are really facing. And that challenge that people have today is, when you turn 65, you focused a lot of your time and your energy and saving up for the day that you're going to retire and for the time that you've retired. And there's a lot of tools and there's a lot of companies that are helping people do that and do that better. Uh, but unfortunately, I think there's a real gap in terms of when you turn 65, how you actually take the pot of money that you've saved up and spend that in a way that, one, lets you live the lifestyle that you actually want to live but also to ensure that you're not running out of money. And that's a real big concern, I think, for a lot of people today. And the products that we sell actually help people do that uh, by taking a portion of their money and turning it into a guaranteed paycheck that they're receiving every month. So are these products that you guys underwrite? Are you the actual financial institution that underwrites the annuity, or are you selling other people's products? One way we explain it is we're essentially think of it like a um, a platform where uh, you're able to learn about, compare, and if they're right for you, purchase um, private market pensions. I think that's the easiest way to think about it. A generation ago, uh, most people had pensions from their employer. Today, people have 401ks or IRAs, but they don't usually have a pension. Um, and so we're the platform where people go to get that pension stream. And you know, the pension stream uh, is underwritten by uh, insurance companies, life insurance companies. So um, these are large household names, companies like Lincoln, companies like 
Pacific Life, companies like um, Guardian. Um, and essentially what we do is we're helping consumers compare products, um, uh, sort of do the product education um, and help them understand if they're fit and then do the price comparison. So, uh, you know, you're not you're not taking a flight from orbits. You're buying uh, your flight on orbits, but but it's it's you know it's a Delta flight or United flight. Same applies here. Uh, and in that example, the corollary uh, of orbits would be would be us. So we're not a balance sheet um, intensive business. Um, and the counterparty risk uh, of the that the individual is taking on is that of the insurer, not of us. So you you have. You have a market, sort of a marketplace. You have two sides of this transaction. You're bringing people together. Um, how many insurance companies actually sell these products, and how many of them do you have on the platform? So, in the market we're in, um, there are, it's an emerging space, um, and so there are about 15 insurance companies who are in the market, and we have seven currently on our platform. So what are some of the, the challenges that you guys have faced, you know, since you've taken this product or taken this platform rather to market? Um, I know we were discussing earlier that you guys thought you were founding a, fin- or a finance company, but it seems you've really started a marketing company. Can you talk a little bit about that and some of the challenges around that? Yeah, sure. I, I'm sure you have a lot to add, Nimish, but I can, I can uh, talk about what I've seen. Um, you know, I'd say one pretty large challenge is customer education. Um, you know, we, to, to use, to go back to Orbitz, we thought we were starting an Orbitz for annuities, but what we realized is that unlike, you know, uh, you go to Orbitz because you know you're going to take a flight and you're just deciding which airline to go with. Um, but in our case, really the more fundamental question is, is this product right for me? Should I be buying an annuity? Um, and, and there's a lot of product-related questions before you get to that decision of which insurer to buy from and comparing products. And so that is is both an opportunity for us to add value, and you know, and it, and frankly, a challenge because we are uh, helping customers understand the space uh, quite a bit better. I'd say another um, interesting dynamic with what we're doing is just. The, the demographic um, is, is different than what most fintech startups and startups in general um, are going after. Um, we like to say we're not selling T-shirts to millennials. Uh, this is a, very much a, a different business than that. Um, larger purchase sizes, uh, older consumers. I think, you know, in general, people tend to underestimate how much baby boomers um, and early retirees are doing online. So, and, and the trends are changing very rapidly. So I think this is a massive, massive market going forward and, and we're really early. Um, so that, you know, that's definitely an area where we are, you know, constantly um, trying to learn and, and think not, not about what we'd want, but what, um, what customers in the demographic are, are looking for. What kind of customers are you going after? How big are the, you know, what, what's the typical size of an annuity contract? You mentioned they're pretty large in comparison to other financial transactions. Who, who are these people and, and how big are these these contracts? Yeah, so today, actually, you know, if you look at the average annuity customer, it's typically going to be someone that's, uh, you know, 60 to 65 years old. Uh, 
largely male. Uh, and you know, today the the average size of the annuity purchase is about fifty thousand dollars, and the minimum actually purchase size that's that's available from the insurance companies today is ten thousand. So. You know, if you're thinking about this from a consumer's perspective, it actually is a sizable amount of money Absolutely. that's going into a product. Um, so, you know, I think we've done a lot of work and we've done a lot of thinking on whether, you know, the traditional annuity customer is going to be the person that's going to find our platform and our service uh, most beneficial as they're doing their research and they're thinking through their purchase. And I, you know, I think that. That is definitely one segment that we are thinking about. Uh, the ability to compare products in real time. Uh, if you're looking for one today, let's say you have a quote in hand from your insurance agent, there's real value, I think, in saying and double checking uh, that you are insure, you are in fact getting the price that that's the most competitive. Um, you're getting a product that you're most comfortable with. But I think you know what's interesting about the space and the business is that this challenge that people are facing of getting to 65 and preparing for retirement and understanding how much money they can spend every year is something that goes far beyond men that are buying annuities today. I think there's a large swath, and I think everybody in, the, in you know, given different, obviously, income uh, constraints, everybody is a little bit afraid and, and unsure of what they need to do as they're thinking about spending in retirement. And uh, the products that we sell, I think, can provide real value uh, for anybody that is thinking about retiring and is unsure of how long their money is going to last. Um, you know, so we're really thinking hard, I think, about uh, who the right people are, who finds, you know, who has the biggest need for the product essentially today. All right. So one, uh, you know, one thing that gets brought up a lot in conversations that I have with founders in the fintech space is regulation, right? That's the reason there's such um, concentration um, in the world of finance across many verticals. It's um, generally a pretty big hurdle for startups to deal with some of these regulatory barriers. You know, and there's obviously a number of different ways to deal with these hurdles, right? Um, you know, you can kind of ignore them until you're big enough for someone to pay attention. Um, you can raise a bunch of money and you can um, spend money to, to deal with these regulatory hurdles and pay, pay the fees and do all those things you need to do. Or you can be creative and find a way to sort of circumvent them, you know, provide banking, for example, without being a bank. So what are some of the regulatory issues you guys have faced? Uh, how have you dealt with them? I'll, I'll start uh, in answering the question by saying uh, option A from that list is not an approach we're taking. Let the record show. Um, you know, insurance in, in uh, all seriousness is a unique uh, regulatory landscape in the sense that uh, insurance regulation is state-based. Um, there's a lot of uh, model laws that um, are propagated across the states, but laws vary from, from state to state pretty significantly. Um, in some cases. And so, um, you know, insurance regulation, you know, and financial services regulation, I think, you know, what they have in common uh, is the fact that you have to be very cognizant of it. And you can't build a business that is ignorant of the regulatory landscape because you're probably going to be building a business that, that doesn't last. Um, you know, at the end of the day, what, what we found is that insurance regulation, financial services regulation, you know, it's it's got the consumer's best interest in mind, or it's intended to. Um, and you know, you 
you constantly have to be looking at what the regulatory landscape looks like. And, and I think open communication um, with regulators and others is, is the best approach um, and, and I think has been um, effective for us so far. So, you know, I, I think when you look back um, at, you know, some of the, the doubters to marketplace lenders um, back you know, five years ago or so, um, there were a lot of challenges that sort of the incumbents thought that they would not be able to overcome, and they've managed to do it um, by and large. And, you know, I think you you always have to be cognizant of the regulations um, and, and mindful of them as you're building your business. Um, but um, at the same time, um, you know, be figuring out how you can, you know, meet those regulations while still, you know, innovating and and uh, bringing on creative destruction. Cool. So I'm going to close here by asking you guys, what does the what does the future hold for Boris? What, what, what's something coming down the pipe the next three to six months that we should get excited about? Um, what's the future look like? We uh, we're just getting started. Um, so, you know, three to six months is um, a lot in startup years. It's kind of like dog years. Um, so <laughs> by that measure, it's, you know, at least three or four. Um, we, ha we have some very, very excited stuff uh, in the hopper. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, what we're focused on right now is connecting with our customers and figuring out how to deliver more and more value to them. Um, the customers we, we have connected with, um, you know, we are increasingly um, sure that we're, we're providing uh, a lot of value add, um, and we're going to keep doubling down um, and, and finding, uh, finding new customers. So we're super excited about uh, what the future holds. Uh, I know that's a bit of a vague answer. Um, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> but rest assured, exciting stuff coming up. All right, guys, uh, this was great. I want to thank you both for being the first founders that uh, we've hosted on the Wharton Fintech podcast. Uh, so thanks, Nimish. Thanks, Matt. And for all you guys that are listening out there that want to know more about what these guys are doing, um, we have interviewed Matt before for the blog, and we've got a whole lot more interesting content up on the site. So go to whartonfintech.org if you want to read a little bit more. And stay tuned uh, for the next episode of the podcast, which will be out next week. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Daniel.